In 2004, Sharon McKay received the news that nobody wants to hear, that she had cancer. She was a 46-year-old mother of four living in Northern Ireland. She had spindle cell sarcoma, and the form of it was so rare there were only 10 cases documented worldwide. Experts from Harvard to London studied her case. Eventually, the cancer spread. She was given one year to live. It was deemed inoperable. Not what you want to hear. She still went for regular scans. But then all of a sudden, one day, the scans showed nothing. The lesions were gone. Not, not smaller, they were all gone. And many experts were called in. They confirmed her cancer was gone, but no explanation was given. She's still alive and well today, cancer-free. And her case is still studied as an example of the mystery of spontaneous cancer remission. If you were asked Sharon, though, she would tell you it was just the power of prayer. She later said, quote, when the doctor said my cancer was terminal, I put my faith into practice. The situation was out of my hands, and I just believed in the power of prayer, end quote. There will always be skeptics, but we know our God has the power to heal, and indeed, such is the power of prayer. But things aren't always so cut and dry, because it seems like for every story of Sharon McKay, there's a story of Joni Erickson Tata. In 1967, Joni dove headfirst into the Chesapeake Bay. She thought it was deeper. It wasn't. She hit her head, fractured her spine, and became a quadriplegic at the age of 17. So just imagine that. Joni, being a Christian, of course, prayed fervently for healing. She even went to a faith healing service early on with her sister. She was placed in the wheelchair section with all the other quadriplegics, but they were never called on stage. They were always passed by. The quadriplegics and the paralytics were never called up for healing. Her lack of healing made her wonder what kind of a savior would refuse the prayer of a paralytic. She recalls reading John chapter 5, where Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And she wondered how long would she have to wait? When would it be her turn? And now it's been almost 50 years and still no healing. So what do you make of that? How do you explain a savior who has rejected the prayer of a paralytic? Where was the power of prayer in her case? You might say, well, maybe she didn't have enough faith. But if you know anything about Jenny Erickson Tata, her faith will make yours look puny. So, so what gives? We want to believe in a God who will spontaneously heal someone's cancer, but will you just the same accept a God who will leave someone's paralysis for half a century? How do you understand and explain a God who seems to sometimes heal and sometimes not heal. And what does that mean for us in our sickness? Should we pray for healing? Should we expect it or not? What does the Bible have to say about all that? That's what we want to try and figure out this morning. We're back this morning for a third and final message on sickness. After finishing the Gospel of Mark, I've been preaching on some other passages and subjects of note. One in particular was 1 Corinthians 11, where we studied the right manner of partaking in the Lord's Supper. There, Paul brought up this potential connection, though, between sickness and sin. That led to a whole bunch of new questions. And so over the past two weeks, we've been exploring the relationship between sickness and sin. Before moving on, though, there's one passage we reference in passing that is seemingly calling out for a further study, and that's in James chapter 5. You can open your Bibles there now. We wanted to return and devote all of our attention this morning to this one passage in James chapter 5. This passage perfectly ties together everything we've been studying about the relationship and response to sickness and sin. 
So whether you've been here the past two weeks or not, James 5 gives some substantial teaching on the relationship between sickness, healing, sin, prayer, and faith. It will both wrap up our discussion as well as take us even deeper when it comes to understanding sickness. All this, of course, is meant to edify you, to build you up, that whether you get cancer or are paralyzed, whether you are healed or not, you know how to rightly respond and process your your sickness to the glory of God. So we're going to add to that now, add to that understanding from James 5, verses 13 through 18, which we can read together now. James 5, verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This ending of James 5 is notorious for creating more questions than it answers. But actually, I want to use that as a way to frame this discussion. So as we go through this verse, this passage verse by verse, just for some, some organization, let me give you four Q&As from James 5, 13 through 18, on sickness, prayer, healing, and faith. Four questions, which we will answer, of course. Four Q&As on sickness, prayer, healing, and faith. Number one, what is the nature of this sickness? Obviously, it's got to be the first question when you jump into this passage. What is the nature of this sickness? Verse 14, he asks, is any among you sick? Naturally, you see the word sick in English. You assume someone's got some disease or something. But when you're interpreting scripture, you can't just go with assumptions or casual reading. So, for example, did you know the word for sick in verse 14 is different from the word for sick in verse 15? You wouldn't know that from a casual reading of your English translation. You've got to go further and study. And so that's what we're going to do. The place to start is by studying closer the words James uses in this passage. So let's begin for the word for sick in verse 14, astheneo in the Greek. Bear with me. Let's do some good old-fashioned Bible study. This is the Greek word for strength. It has the negative in front of it, so it literally means without strength or weak. This can be then physical weakness, spiritual weakness, emotional, financial, moral weakness, anything like that. Like most words, it has a range of meaning. So in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's used 20 times, every time referring to physical weakness, i.e. sickness. But in the epistles, the letters, the word is used 14 times, and with a few exceptions means spiritual weakness, those who are weary or depressed in the faith. So we wonder, which is it here in James? The answer is, we don't know yet. We've got to keep going. The second word for sick is in verse 15. Like I said, it's actually a different word. Kamno in the Greek. The word has the primary meaning of being weary or fatigued, distressed. This is the person who is worn out or exhausted. That could be brought on by illness or labor or persecution or, or whatever. 
The only, the only other time this word is used in the New Testament, though, it has the clear meaning of a spiritual fatigue. A few more words to study. How about the word for restore in verse 15? He says in the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick. Here's the word sozo in the Greek, which is literally the word for saved. This is the word used often in the spiritual sense for salvation, sozo. Now, the word also can be used in a physical sense to refer to deliverance from some bodily harm or, or death. So it could go both ways, physical or spiritual. The same goes for the word raise up in verse 15. He says the Lord will raise him up. This is the word agero in the Greek, and it too can go either way. Sometimes it's used of physical healing where, like for example, Jesus healed the paralytic and raised him up, and he got up and walked. The word is also used of spiritual deliverance where the Lord Jesus will raise up those when he comes, notably talking about the resurrection. He will raise us up. The last word for healing, so we're looking at the words for sickness, the words for healing. There's five of them. The last word is healed in verse 16. He says, pray for one another that you may be healed. This is the word yeomai in the Greek. Much like the first word for sick, when this word is used in the Gospels, it usually refers to physical sickness and therefore physical healing. But just like the English word for healing, it can be used in a spiritual sense as well. So, for example, Matthew 13, 15, it talks about a spiritual healing that is salvation. Same thing, 1 Peter 2, 24. So you start and do a little Bible study. You start with the words being used. And what have we learned so far? Well, we have a series of words James uses to talk about sickness and healing, and we find they could, they could all go either way. James very well could be talking about someone who is physically ill in need of prayer for physical healing, or he could just the same be talking about someone who is spiritually ill, meaning weary or depressed, who needs spiritual encouragement through prayer. Now, as I mentioned last week, and as we'll see continuing on, this is not always so much an either-or, but oftentimes a both-and, because all too often are not our physical and spiritual problems related. That's something we've been studying for a couple weeks. But still, we, we, it's fair to figure out what, is, what does he primarily mean by these words? What's he, what's he primarily getting at? A physical weakness or a spiritual weakness? And the answer is that from the text alone, you can't really tell. You could argue that since James is an epistle, that he's talking about spiritual weakness because the word group he uses in the epistles, they most often are referring to a spiritual weakness, not a, a physical disease. But that's not really enough to seal the deal. We want something more, right? What we really need to do now is to study the context. Context. And you realize that's how words get their meaning, right? Even in English, if you open up a dictionary, any word will have a whole bunch of Different definitions. Same word, it can mean a bunch of different things. And so what does it mean in any given context? Well, the context will, will tell you. A good example is the word bar. I think that's the word that has the most different definitions in the English language. It can mean like a thousand different things. So if you're reading a newspaper article and you see the word bar, what, what's it mean? What's the definition of that word? Well, it depends on the story. If, if the phrase is, he was so drunk he was thrown out of the bar. You already know enough to know bar means drinking establishment. 
Or if the, the context is a guy and he says, you know, although he, he nearly flunked out of college, he passed the bar with flying colors, you already know enough that bar is referring to a legal exam, right? I mean, you know how this goes. In English, you don't even think about this because that's our, our native language. But remember, the New Testament was written in Greek. So we have to be more careful when studying the context to try and figure out the meaning of, of our words. And that's, that's everything. Words, the words are, are what we're getting at here. So let's do that now with, with James. What's the context to this little passage in James 5? We'll start back in James 1. The, the bigger picture, to whom is James writing? Oh, James chapter 1, verse 1, he says, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. He's writing to Jewish Christians after the first major persecution in Jerusalem. It's recorded in Acts chapter 8. They sent all these Jewish believers running, scattered across the Roman Empire. They now find themselves doubly outcasts as both Jews and Christians living in a pagan world. This led to, as you can imagine, serious trials and tribulations. Not surprisingly then, James begins by encouraging them to do what? To patiently endure their various trials. So chapter 1, verse 2, he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is under no impression that their hardships will just disappear. Rather, he tells them to patiently endure, seeing God's perfecting purpose in their sufferings. This is how he opens the letter. This is the theme, the undercurrent that runs throughout the letter. This is how he closes the letter. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he starts by condemning the rich for their oppression of the poor, even unto death. Many of these Jewish believers were being oppressed by the poor and some were even being killed. Then in verses 7 through 11, he tells these believers how they should respond and, and what do you know? It's all about patient endurance. Patient endurance. He returns to his opening theme about how to respond to trials, to suffering. So chapter 5, verse 7, he says, Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Chapter 5, verse 8, you too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Our rescue from suffering and oppression won't necessarily come in this life, so he says our hope must be on Christ when he returns. That's what we're really waiting for. And so verse 10, he says, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I'm talking about an example of suffering. Who suffered more than Job? Yet what was his response? It was to patiently endure. God's merciful. He will restore his people. But the whole point James makes is it may not come in this life. So his consistent message is to patiently endure your sufferings, strengthen your heart, and look to Christ. Wait, wait for Christ's return. Because when he comes back, he will set all things right. So just patiently wait on the Lord. That's what he says time and time again. So overall, what is James's focus in the context? It is suffering, persecuted, oppressed believers 
We're having a hard time living in this pagan world. Already the context tells you quite a lot. As you can see for yourself, the concept of illness or disease is is absent from the context. But the concept of spiritual weakness or weariness, that's precisely what he's talking about. James is talking to people who, because of their intense suffering, they're prone to spiritual weariness. So he says back in verse 13, Is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. This word refers to enduring evil treatment by people, not illness. The same word was used of the prophets back in verse 10. And they suffered not because of illness, but because of persecution, oppression, affliction. He says, if that's you, pray. Then he says, is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Not all of them were going to be so bad. A few might be prospering, and that's great. Even in good times, though, don't, don't forget the Lord, and so sing his praises. But then in verse 14 he says, is anyone among you sick? And for James to here be all of a sudden bringing up disease or illness would be rather out of the blue. Rather, the context argues he's now setting his sights on those who've been defeated by their suffering, namely the spiritually sick, the weak, the discouraged. Again, remember this word for sick in verse 14, it can legitimately go either way, physical weakness or spiritual weakness. The context has to tell us. And in this case, it argues for a spiritual weakness. Also, we said earlier, verse 15, that word for sick primarily means fatigue. And so you can see now why James uses that word synonymously with the first word for sickness. He's talking about those who are weak in the faith. They're battered. They're beat down. They're oppressed. They're barely hanging on. What's pretty interesting, if James intended to talk about physical illness or disease, there are other words in the Greek he could have used which would have removed all doubt. Common words. But he didn't use those. He uses words that leave the door open for spiritual weakness, and the context takes us through that door. Now, all that being said, I'm not saying physical illness is excluded from this discussion in James 5. Clearly not. Because what often brings a person to the point of spiritual depression? Oftentimes it's disease, illness, right? I met a lady who struggled with chronic pain for a decade. She couldn't sit down, she couldn't lie down without this pain. And that will really wear you down. And it did. She was spiritually weak, just hanging on, very fatigued, exhausted spiritually in the, in the faith. There's nothing like disease to make the soul sick. But here's the point that you need to gather. Primarily, James is not talking about someone who, may, who is physically sick. They might be, but they might not be. Primarily, though, he's talking about the person who is spiritually weak and weary. Their faith is flailing, brought on, as James puts it, by various trials. Those trials could be disease, but they could be persecution, they could be economic oppression, poverty, there could be many things. So the overall diagnosis for this sickness in this passage, we have a word for it. It's called depression. This is describing someone who is depressed, spiritually depressed. You may never have thought about that before, but if you know someone who is battling depression, especially uh, in regards to the faith, this passage is actually primarily for them. 
This is confirmed by the closing context. We skipped the actual ending of James, but notice how he ends the letter, which otherwise seems out of place. But look, he says, verse 19, My brethren, if, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. There's no doubt here he's talking about spiritual deliverance, not physical deliverance. But that makes perfect sense because when a believer battles spiritual depression, what are they prone to do? To wander, to wander away from the faith, even abandon the faith. So he says, if you know someone like that and you can minister to them and turn them back, you will save their soul from death. By the way, save, sozo, same word for restore in verse 16, used in a spiritual sense. You're not going to save their body, but you will save their soul from death. So as you can see, the whole surrounding context argues that James is giving instruction on how to minister to those who are spiritually sick, weary, discouraged, beat down, depressed by their sufferings in life, which may be physical, may not be physical, may be economic, might be family relationships, whatever it is. Now, we're, we're clearly not done. There's a lot more to, stay, to say, so, so stick with me here. We're going to see how this view is both confirmed and fleshed out as we keep going. Question number two. What is the response to such sickness? If that's what this sickness is all about, well, then how do we respond? What is the response to such sickness? Look again at verse 14. He says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. What immediately grabs your attention here is that the sick person is not told to pray for himself, but to call on the elders and they are to come and pray over him. What is that all about? You surely wonder. Well, first, let's talk about the elders. Who are the elders? I trust you already know we're an elder-run church. The elders and pastors and overseers, these are all the same person in the New Testament. They are the Christ-appointed leaders of the local church. They are to feed, lead, protect the flock of Christ as under-shepherds of Christ. So they're the leaders of the local church. You know that. What's really striking in this passage, though, is who is absent, who is not named, namely healers. Have you ever thought about that? If James is talking primarily about those who are ill or diseased, why doesn't he call those who have the gift of healing to come and, and heal the person? That's what you'd expect, but he doesn't. He just calls on the elders to come and to pray. And to be sure, this scenario here in James 5, it is not the gift of healing in action. The gift of healing in the New Testament was the supernatural ability bestowed by the Holy Spirit to instantly heal someone. Every single example of healing we have, from Jesus to Peter to Paul, every example, the healing was instantaneous and complete. Sometimes they prayed, but oftentimes they didn't even pray. They just spoke, and the person was instantly and completely healed. But that's definitely not the picture here in James 5. Verse 16 confirms that, because later he tells all of them to pray for one another, that they might all be healed. As we will see, there's a sense in which we should all be praying for one another 
that we all might be healed, whatever that means. But that's certainly not the gift of healing because Paul makes clear not everyone has the gift of healing. But James considers this prayer to be something all Christians can and should be doing. This is for everybody. This is not the gift of healing. So again, it's striking here that James calls for church elders to come and pray, not for healers. It's equally striking that the elders, who are Christ's appointed leaders of his church, they're never required to have the gift of healing, nor even seen to do so. The Lord made very clear the requirements to be an elder, and the gift of healing is not one of them, which is pretty interesting. They are set apart by their godly character and the spiritual gift of teaching. That's it. That's who Christ chose to lead the church. But in the context of James 5, that actually makes perfect sense because if we have a person who is physically, or rather not physically ill, but spiritually weak, they need to call on those who are what? Spiritually strong. And that's why you call for the elders to minister to them. What are the elders to do? He says first they are to pray. As the New Testament makes everywhere clear, prayer is the right response to any suffering or affliction. And in addition to the ministry of the word, prayer is the main job of the elder. So the elders are to pray for the spiritual strength, encouragement, and healing of this weak believer. If physical sickness is a contributing factor to this person's spiritual depression, then of course they're to pray for that and pray for healing. But again, primarily in the context, they're praying for this person's spiritual state. It also says in verse 14, They are to anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And you also wonder, okay, what's that all about? And undoubtedly, there have been many views down through the years. The Catholics, for example, from this one verse, they derive their practice of extreme unction, which is where the priest will anoint someone with oil and pray for them right before they die to usher their soul to heaven, so to speak. That's very misguided because this whole practice is not about ushering someone to death, but but saving them, that they are healed and restored, whatever it means. Also, Catholics and some Christians treat this anointing like a religious ritual or a ceremony, but that it is certainly not. There are two words for anoint in the Greek, elepho and krio. Krio is the religious word, the sacramental word. That word is used of anointing priests with oil, ceremonially you're consecrating them you're setting them apart for service it's a very like religious practice that's not the word used here though this word is elepho and that's that's like the mundane word that's your everyday word for anoint this word speaks of anointing with oil for the purpose of hygiene grooming or refreshment which back in the ancient world that was very common that was a typical thing to do also this word speaks of literally rubbing oil on someone not ceremonially dabbing someone like the priest will dab your forehead. This, that's not what this word is about. This is literally taking some oil and rubbing someone, someone down. So Jesus uses this word in Matthew 16. He says, anoint your whole head with oil when you're fasting. Why? That's part of their grooming. It's like, well, don't, don't be all gloomy. Look, look proper and anoint your head with oil. Or in John 12:3, Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with perfume and she takes it and rubs it in with her hair and she prepares him. For his death. Now that's true. Oil often symbolizes the Holy Spirit in Scripture. That's very much true. And those who, who see a physical healing here like that and run with that. But we can't ignore the words, the text, or the context. 
we have a word used not of ceremonial or ritual anointing for physical healing. This is a word referring to the common practice of using oil as a means of grooming or refreshment. Very typical for them to do that back then. But this likewise fits what we've learned so far. For those who are spiritually weak, depressed, discouraged, what do they need? They also need physical comfort and refreshment. In the ancient world, to anoint someone's head with oil, and a world without showers was a means of refreshing them. And that's the intention here. Since the body and the soul are connected, the elders are to minister to the depressed person spiritually by praying for them, and even physically by showing them compassion, and in that case back then anointing them with oil, which is a common practice in the ancient world. Now, like I said, I know there's a lot of different views on the oil. Whatever the case, wherever you land, though, I'll tell you what's absolutely clear, and that is the oil is secondary to the prayer. That should be crystal clear. The restoration is never connected to the oil, but only to the prayer. It is the prayer of faith that will save, he says in verse 15, not the oil. So let's talk about that. Question number three, what is the result of this prayer? Someone is weak or sick, the elders are to come and pray. To what end? Why are they praying? Verse 15, he says, And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Here a promise is given. The prayer in faith will restore or save the one who is sick. Praying in faith is a big deal to James. Again, talking context, back in chapter 1, he opened the book with that same context of suffering by rebuking them for being double-minded. He says, look, if you're praying to God and you have any doubt about him or his power or his promises, and you have doubt in your prayer, expect to receive nothing from God. And so he says in James 1, verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. The elders of the church, of course, should be those who are spiritually strong. They will pray in faith. So they're the right ones to call. And through their prayers, God promises to restore the one who is sick and to raise him up. Again, those two words we studied, they can go either way. Physical restoration, spiritual restoration, but again, we have to say the context is taking us to a spiritual restoration. This also best explains the connection to forgiveness of sins, which otherwise seems like, well, why is he bringing that up? But see the spiritual connection. He says, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. As the elders minister the word and prayer to this person, their spiritual suffering may be revealed to have been tied to their sin. That's what we've been studying for the past two weeks, how your physical or spiritual affliction, whatever the case, may be tied to your personal sin. It's possible. But nonetheless, we see the same response. The person is to repent, they will be forgiven, and thereby the weak member is encouraged and restored in the faith. Now, before moving on, I do still want to address the whole notion of physical healing here. Through our, our study the words, the text, the context. It's taken us to an interpretation of this passage that this is talking about a spiritual weakness and a spiritual restoration. 
Not all agree. Some see a physical weakness and a physical restoration here. But from what we've seen so far, if that's true, it means that in verse 15, we do not, ha- <clears throat> excuse me, we do not have a promise for physical healing in response to prayer. I'm not saying that God doesn't heal in response to prayer. He does. We pray for his healing all the time. But this verse does not serve as a blank check promise that every time you pray in faith, you will be healed. No such promise is made. A lot of people believe that, so I want to address it. In reality, there is no promise anywhere in Scripture that God will heal you physically in response to prayer every time, you know, i.e. a promise. He might. He might not. It's simply not a promise he has made. That's up to his will, which we do not know. His will to heal me, to not heal me, I don't know. To be absolutely clear, we, we still pray for healing, of course, all the time. Just like Third John verse 2 says. John says, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. He's praying for their good health. And we do the same. We pray for people's health all the time. But our prayer for healing fits into the category of Philippians 4.6, where we let our requests be made known to God. There's no promise given, but we still pray. God may choose to heal. He may not. As we learned last week, the past two weeks, God has many reasons to leave sickness, right? Didn't we study that? All the reasons he allows and leaves sickness in a person's life. There are many. But here's the problem for those who treat James 5 like that blank check promise for healing in response to prayer. Some people believe that. And so you often see, for example, faith healers today operating off of this verse, off of that belief. Every one of them, though, everyone who believes that there's a promise for physical healing, they eventually have to explain why so many people are not healed in response to prayer. Why are there millions of people like Joni Erickson Tata who are never healed after a lot of prayer and faith? At the very least, if you're going to if you're going to believe that, you've got to explain that. Well, has God's promise failed? No, no, no one's going to say that. It's not God's promise's fault. And so that only leaves really one option. They have to say that the sick person must not have had enough faith because it's the prayer offered in faith. Well, that you weren't healed because you didn't have enough faith, right? I'm sure you've heard this. That's such an erroneous and damaging falsehood. How often did Jesus heal people with little to no faith? Also notice, if this passage is talking about those who are physically sick and then physically healed, and you have a case where the sick person is not healed, who's at fault? The elders, right? They're the ones praying in faith to restore the sick. It's not the sick guy's fault. He's just sitting there. It's the elders who are praying in faith for him to be healed. And that totally flips the table on faith healers, by the way. If they're operating off this verse, which most of them do, and you have someone who's not instantly healed, it's actually their faith that is insufficient. They have too little of faith to heal the person if they're functioning as elders. But you don't hear that preached, right? They won't mention that. Also, we have to mention... Everyone will eventually learn the hard way. There is no promise for healing in this life because everyone will eventually get sick and die. So we see one by one, even many of these faith healers, they get sick and they're not healed. 
Just last year, Rod Parsley, a faith healer, got throat cancer. And he did not attend one of his own healing services. He did not call any of his healing buddies to come and pray and heal him. He quietly went to the doctor to get chemo and radiation. I trust you know better. For as we have studied over the past two weeks, it's simply not always God's will to physically heal someone. We can prove that from scripture. Elisha, the great healer, died of sickness. Also, Paul was plagued with many severe illnesses, not healed of many of them. He also left other people sick. Trophimus, he left sick in Miletus. Timothy, Epaphroditus, he couldn't heal them. He didn't heal them. He left them sick. Jesus did the same thing. Mark chapter 1. There's this huge crowd. They're looking for Jesus to be healed. They heard he's done some healings. So a bunch more people come. They want healing. And what does he do? He basically runs away. He escapes them and he doesn't heal any of them. In John chapter 5, if a huge multitude of sick people lying by the pool of Bethesda, Jesus heals the one guy, paralyzed for 38 years, but he leaves all the other of them sick and paralyzed. He doesn't heal any of, anyone else but the one guy. It's not a power issue. He's got the power to heal them. It just was not God's will at the time. And then there's Lazarus. Remember when Jesus heard, Lazarus is your friend and he's sick. Jesus on purpose did not heal him, but let him die. Now we know God had a greater purpose there. So we're okay with that because God had a greater purpose. Well, God always has a greater purpose. Just we don't usually know what it is. That's also what we've been studying for the past two weeks. But as we've learned, God has many purposes in leaving sickness. And you can't presume on God's hidden will. It's part of his hidden will, and we don't know that. So what do we pray? Lord, your, your will be done. You know, James believes that. What did he say back in James chapter 4, verse 14? He's talking about people who were presuming on the Lord's will wrongly. So he says, you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will be alive and then do this or that. See, we pray for healing if the Lord wills. But you have to come to terms with the fact that, as we've done over the past two weeks, this is a fallen world plagued by sin, sickness, and death of which we will still suffer. God can and does heal in response to prayer. So look, you pray. Let your requests be made known to God, trusting his power and his goodness and love. But realize God often has greater purposes in leaving your sickness. So you pray and you just trust him. Like we learned last week, you just trust him and his plan. Paul himself prayed for his weakness in the flesh. He used the same word for sickness in James 5.14. God told him, no, his, his, he was not healed. Of course, God's promise didn't fail. There is no prayer, or rather, there is no promise for physical healing in response to prayer every single time. But God's promise for spiritual strength came through. And so it does today. Those who've been battered down by the world, oppressed, made weary by physical illness, illness or something else, nevertheless are still victorious in Christ and need only to pray in faith to see Christ's power restore them. God's power is ready and waiting for those if they would only pray. And so we can finish with the final question, number four. What is the application for the church? 
What is the application for the church? Look at verse 16. Verse 16. He says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effect of prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. This is how James applies what he's taught now to all the church. This confession of sin and prayer is something we all should be doing all the time for one another, lest we get to that point of spiritual bankruptcy. Don't let hidden sin remain in your life because that will cause you to wander and fall and and become spiritually depressed. He says instead, confess to one another. If you've wronged someone, seek their forgiveness. Hold one another accountable. He says also pray for one another. Lift up one another to run the race with endurance. All over James, the whole book, he never gives us the impression that our trials will just leave, physical or otherwise. That's not the expectation. Rather, the admonition is to endure, even as they remain, to patiently endure. Your sickness might not go away. Patiently endure. Strengthen your hearts, he says, and look to Christ and to his return. This is what James 5 is all about, and you need to help one another, one another in this regard. Some people grow and have grown so weak and weary, they need intervention from the elders to come and lift them up. But be praying for one another that you don't even get to that point. And that's his point in verse 16. And James finishes this up with a perfect illustration in verses 17 and 18. Look there. Verse 17, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. This illustration has confused a lot of people because it doesn't seem to fit. I mean, why on earth did James not use the example of 1 Kings 17 when Elijah healed the dead widow's son through prayer? Right? If this is a passage about physical sickness and physical healing, that's the perfect example. You have Elijah, the widow's son has died, he prays for her, his healing, and the prayer is answered, and he's raised up. It's like the perfect illustration if this is physical healing and, and physical sickness. But James doesn't use that example, nor are many of the other examples of healing in response to prayer in the Old Testament. could have used Hezekiah. Instead, he uses this deal about Elijah and rain. And so people are wondering, like, what, 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 what point is he trying to make? But this example actually fits perfectly into James's argument. First, it shows the power of prayer, straightforward. Elijah was praying in accordance with the will of God because God actually promised rain in that situation. And so he prayed in faith, and his prayer was answered. But it also shows how prayer can bring God's refreshment. What better picture is there of a beaten and battered soul than dry, parched ground? Your spirit has dried up. It may be in connection to your sin, which it was even in James's day, or rather Elijah's day. But through prayer in faith, God's rain comes and the land is refreshed. Like we see even in our hills today, everything's green again. And that's precisely what's being promised in James 5. God may or may not heal your body, But the promise is for your soul, that he will lift your spirits and enable you to to keep running, even if your affliction remains. That promise will never fail so long as you have faith. Also notice, he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, meaning he's, he's not 
special. He's not like a superman. Granted, he's a great prophet, but he's, he's like us. And the point is, you too can pray for yourself and others and see God's joy and strength come back into their lives and reinvigorate them and renew them and refresh their spirit before the Lord. So lift one another up in prayer. That's the application. It's in this exact same vein that we get the powerful passage of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. A familiar passage. I bring it up because in the same context of Hebrews 12, the author uses the same words for sickness and healing, but also in that spiritual sense, for spiritual weariness and restoration. Let me read Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Same word for sickness right there, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's like the same thing all all packaged together. And these are the promises we live by. As we've been saying for weeks now, Jesus redeemed us holistically, body and soul. But in this fallen world, until the kingdom comes, the curse still reigns. That means sickness and death. Even Jesus did not escape his suffering. He had to face it and endure it. And same goes for us, whatever that might be. He called us to pick up our cross, to follow him. That might mean persecution, that might mean affliction or sickness or suffering or whatnot. But the point is our hope is not here, it's with him. He's already redeemed our inner man. He's already made new our spirits. All we await is the redemption of our bodies. So like Hebrews says, like James says, just be patient until the coming of the Lord and endure whatever you're going through. Pray to God for strength. He will lift you up. For now, we're left behind to live life on this earth. You just have to do one thing, to finish the race of faith. That's all you got to do. Finish the race of faith. You might have to endure your cross. Like Jesus said, you will. But as with Christ, the cross comes before the crown. You just fix your eyes on him. Through prayer, you're laying aside sin like James says, like Hebrews says. And God will give you all the strength and power you need to to run, to run with endurance, to just keep going, no matter what affliction comes. Like God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. He delights to leave us weak, but give us just enough to finish that race. And we, we trust him for that. That is, in my estimation, the greater healing and the greater miracle. God is merciful. God is compassionate. And when Christ comes, we will enter into fullness of joy. There will be complete physical healing and redemption and spiritual. For now, though, God purposes to use all things to make us like Christ, even sickness. But you, you just cast your cares on him, knowing he cares for you. And just keep running your race with endurance 
fixing your eyes on Christ, disentangling yourself from sin, and praying for strength. And he will give you this unlimited supply of rain to equip you to do all he calls you to do until Christ comes back. So let's do that and praise him. Let's pray. Great God, we thank you for this this time in your word. And some passages can be challenging to study and interpret. You always pray for your grace and getting them right. But we thank you for what we have learned, that you are a merciful and compassionate God. We live in a fallen world. We are fallen sinners, and we deserve that the sickness, suffering, and death we get. The wages of sin is death. It's only by your grace that you've redeemed us from any of this. We thank you for Christ. Through him, you gave us the ultimate redemption, body and soul, and, and we are already made new on the inner man. Though the outer man decays, still in this world, your mercies are new every morning. We will just trust in you. You're a God who heals. And sometimes you, you will to heal us, and we, we thank you for that great mercy. We praise you for that. Any here sick and suffering, Lord, we pray, if you will, heal them. Miraculously, show the world your power. But Lord, we see you have greater purposes far beyond any individual for your glory. And so we pray your will be done. We trust you. Give us the power we need, though, through the Holy Spirit to keep running, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, to to run this race with endurance, because that's what matters. We just need to make it to that finish line. So give us all we need, Lord. We trust you will. We know you will, because that you have promised. So we pray that in faith, and we will press on to your glory. Until Christ comes, we pray, amen.